Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, the host, and I'm joined by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, how's it going? I'm doing well. Got to shovel snow for the first time. Very weird, right? Yes. <laughs> I don't know that we're going to have we a white are. Christmas, but uh, at least it was white Christmas week. So, um, hey, we got a lot of stuff to get to, a lot of Browns to talk about. There's some Cavs questions I want to ask you after your last night's game about the rotation uh-huh. and what, what we're learning about what's on this roster. And uh, we've got some more letters from fans. And um, Terry, a couple things housekeeping at the top here. We do want to mention your new book, uh, Christmas is Coming Up, and your new book, The Guy with the Sign. Is I, I was out at the book signing last week in Westlake, and I met uh, a couple of fans um, Brian and Colleen and, and Brian was telling me how he played baseball as a kid and your brother was umpiring his game. So it was really mm-hmm. great to, to meet some people, uh, who are Terry Pluto fans, but, um, if people want to get the book, why don't you talk about how they can get it and maybe a little bit about the book real fast. Yeah. Um, you'll be able to pick up some signed copies. I know at the Barnes and Noble in, uh, mentor this week, I would call, I left a bunch of signed copies at Westlake and these are all Barnes and Nobles, I may add, and also at Fairlawn. But they've been the book's been selling. I mean, it sounds strange, surprisingly well. I'm just saying that because it's a faith book. It's almost been selling like one of my Browns books. So I would call the store first if you're looking for a signed copy. Ask if they have any there, and you could either reserve it or whatever. So any uh, whether it's Westlake, Fairlawn, or Mentor, that's one way to pick it up. The other, you go to TerryPluto.com, and they'll They'll show you different ways to uh, order a book. So that's a good one, too. All right. And I think TerryPlutoBook.com is another one just for, another for this one. book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah the, so either way, but even if you go to just the general TerryPluto.com, they'll fix you up that way. So, but I've just been gratified by the reception um, of it. So. Yeah, and the guy with the sign is a column that you wrote about what we should do when we see um, a person with a sign out on the street asking for money. I mean, just, just buying the book for that column alone is worth it because it was a great discussion. And But there's a bunch of other great stuff in there, too. I can't uh, recommend it highly enough. So, um, Okay, so Terry, after the podcast last week, you and I got talking about should we reconstruct how we do the podcast next year, maybe – Instead of doing it team by team with our take on stuff, if we should include questions in each thing. And it kind of got me thinking, like, 
should we throw it out to our listeners and help let them help us kind of reinvent the podcast for 2024, make it better? Uh, should be longer, should be shorter. Campbell talks too much, like whatever, whatever people want to say about it. What do you think of that idea? I'm thinking about maybe putting a survey out maybe after the first of the year. Good idea. Sure. By the way, remember how the Browns have their bye week and they have the self scout. I always like that. Yeah. Why aren't they scouting every week? But that's a whole other story. You've got enough people in the office certainly to do it. But yeah, I'd be curious to see what people say. All right. So we could ask about the length, um, how the thing is constructed, and maybe we'll get some topics together. If you have any ideas for things you'd like to weigh in on in the meantime, uh, hit us at sports at cleveland.com. But we'll, we'll see if we can get that survey going in the next couple of weeks. We'd love to hear what you think and how we can make this better in 2024. So, all right, Terry, man, the Cleveland Browns are nine and five. That's the same record as the Kansas City Chiefs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And uh, you've got a column. We're taping this on Tuesday afternoon, as we usually do. And you've got a column going up tomorrow about how Kevin Stefanski has something in common with a former Browns coach of of yesteryear. And yes. uh, why don't you talk about that for a minute? It, there's some really fascinating stuff in there. I mean, the remarkable thing is the last Browns coach to have two winning seasons in his tenure. I mean, we're not talking about got to be the next Paul Brown here. Just have two winning records during the time he coached the Browns. And the answer is David Campbell. I'm not going to ruin it. I don't want to be spoiler. Go ahead and just yeah. say who it is. Well, that was Marty Schottenheimer. And, yeah. And so the Browns of the late 80s. And you think about that's more than three plus decades. And I, there was a couple things that now, now Marty was really good because Marty had four full. He, he took over in the middle of the uh, 84 season. Kind of a cool story there. I tell it in Vintage Browns. Uh, so they're firing Sam Bertigliano and Art Modell calls Marty to come to his house and says, I want you to finish it out the rest of the year's interim. And Marty says, I don't do interim coaching. You want me to be your coach? Give me a contract for the next couple of years or I'm not your coach. And Art was there actually, I believe, with Kevin Byrne, the former Browns PR guy. And he like walks out of the room, calls Kevin. He goes, I've never had anybody do this or whatever. And Kevin said, I know Barney well enough. He's not changing his mind. You know, so either you want him or you don't. Because Marty knew that um, the interim coach thing is, is kind of like the, the substitute teacher. And some substitute teachers can pull it off, but very few. So he ended up getting a two-year contract and got an extension. And so they they lasted four full seasons. They went to the uh, playoffs all four years. They won a couple playoff games. Uh, his last year was uh, 88. He also had four quarterbacks like this year, uh, Gary Danielson, Mike Pagel, Don Strzok, and, and Bernie. Now, the interesting there is that thing there is that uh, – uh, only three won a game. Danielson only played one game. He didn't win. So Stefanski actually has had one from each of his four quarterbacks. Then after the year, and this is another thing I went into at length that with uh, uh, in my Vintage Browns book, is what happened with, between Marty and Art and that. But one of the classic stories in there is they're mad at each other, all this. They went 10 and 6, by the way. So Art wants, Art's, basically they were frustrated about not making the Super Bowl. That's what was happening back then. So Art calls in Kevin Byrne 
and sitting there with the PR guy who's Kevin Byrne is, is Marty and Art. And Art says, well, Marty's resigning. And Marty says, I'm not resigning. If I'm leaving, Art's firing me. Then Art says, well, I'm not firing you. And Marty <laughs> says, I'm not quitting. And it goes back and forth like this. And Kevin says, well, what am I supposed to call it? And that's where they came up with the infamous parting of the ways. Ah, uh, yes. So they couldn't even agree on how to, you know, end this football marriage. And from that point on, the Browns never had a coach until Kevin Stefanski to have two winning seasons. Man. So, Terry, have you ever, this is a little off topic, but have you ever thought about how different things could have been if Art Modell's ego hadn't been so big? Like, this is, it's basically what happened with Paul Brown, right? Yes. Like, like yeah. and, you have and a successful will, coach in a successful franchise, like, leave it alone. <laughs> now, the interesting I don't thing, get I, it. the change there is, and I was shocked when I started to write the Brownstown 1964 book, I really expected the players to have been upset by getting rid of Paul Brown? And the answer was no. Jim Brown and several others told me they did not believe they would have won the title without the coaching change. But see, the key was they had Blatt and Collier in place. It was basically, the guys told me, he was a nicer version of Paul Brown. Paul Brown was in my way or the highway back then. Blatt and Collier was the master of taking his idea and making it seem like your idea by the time he was done with you in a half hour. And that's what they needed. The other thing that was going on at that point, now this is your thing, is that Art and Paul Brown were fighting. Art and Brown was getting grumpier and grumpier about all this, and I think some was rubbing off on the players. So that, in some sense, it did work out. Uh, but there was no plan B for firing Marty, they ended up uh, bringing in, oh my goodness, I can't think of his name. It's a terrible thing. Bud Carson? Came. Bud Carson, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, a veteran coach. They actually were looking at Belichick at that point. Um, I, I got all this from Ernie Corsi. But they decided to go with Carson. And he, he had a winning season his first year. Second year totally collapsed. Then Bill came in and... There, he had a winning season in 94, went to the playoffs, and there you go. And from there was spurred the myth that's been disproven for years and years that the Browns fired Bill Belichick, which is, as Browns fans know, is not true. So. No, no. I mean, he, he went to Baltimore, and right. Art even at one point said he would be the coach, but then decided to fire Belichick. Primarily the reason he knew how bad Belichick was with the media he was bringing in a new franchise to Baltimore and just didn't want Bill with those grumbling answers and all that. And also they had gotten into it. So he brought in Ted Marchaboda, who had a long history with the Colts and just kind of a nice guy to sort of keep things copacetic until they got that franchise set up. All right, Terry, so to bring this all around, like I wasn't here in the 80s, but I got the impression from afar that Marty was loved by Cleveland fans. Pretty uh, Is is he, that pretty true, or was there a, at the a, end, a segment of fans no, that at didn't the like end, him? Yeah, there was a segment of fans that were frustrated because they thought with a better coach or a better coordinator, they would have gone to the Super Bowl. 
expectations. And then it was sort of at the end, it kind of got, well, they almost were winning as Flight Amari. Now, so now, how does that go compare back. to now? Yeah. Go ahead. Now you can go back. Now, people there will give you revisionist history and say that's not the case or whatever. But especially after Lindy and Fani left as offensive coordinator and then they went through some other coordinators and things. Well, it's the same thing now with Stefanski. You know, the kind of there's grudging respect. Remember, there's immediate love of Stefanski because he was coach of the year. Now, Marty didn't have any eight and nines or seven and ten seasons. But then when Stefanski, you know, began to win this year, in fact, uh, I even used an email from this guy, uh, uh, I think his name was Dave. I just put in two weeks apart, one from where saying, you know, Stefanski's the worst <laughs> and training wheels coach or whatever, to sort of the grudging respect. And I think that that's what's happened here. But I'm simply saying it's just there's there, there are many differences. I mean, Marty became a great coach. I mean, the big knock on Marty is he never went to the Super Bowl, but please. The guy won a lot of games everywhere. He was a turnaround artist for franchises. I don't know that Kevin becomes that guy because there's very few of them. But I did find just some sort of parallels, and it's fun to talk about. Yeah, and it's it is, the turnaround has been fascinating, Terry, because you see – there were so many people, you know, Browns fans, Terry, they want the team to be tough. It's all it's, you write about this all the time. They want to be yeah. tough, smart and accountable. And I got, I get it. Like last year, when you see guys in the back, the back of the defense yeah. pointing at each other, that's not accountable. And they weren't playing smart. And you write in your column about how this has been a huge year of growth for Kevin and they wanted him to become more of a leader. And I think we've seen that you watch the locker room speeches, um, you watch the way he's it, – it's amazing. This is like the story of the year in the NFL. I mean, really, when you look at it, for this team to be 9-5, and five, it, it's an incredible accomplishment of coaching. And not just Kevin Stefanski, but like the whole staff, Jim Schwartz and the special teams with Bubba Ventrone. Um, I, I guess what – have you ever seen a love-hate relationship like this where it turned around so fast? Or is it just you win games and that's what happens? Well, they still don't love him, but now they're back to they don't want to get rid of him. Um, and by the way, he doesn't run the ball enough, you know, it, <laughs> right. And I, I lived in that camp some, but the last two weeks, if you look at that offensive line, it's so battered, you would think it would show up more in the pass blocking, but it showed up more in the run blocking. They can't create any holes earlier in the year. They were, and of course, this is where you really miss Nick Chubb because if there was anything remote, you know, like a, a hole the size of on something you find on Swiss cheese, he found a way to get through it and get five yards. Um, you know, they, they don't have that guy. So I just think that, you know, and Stefanski's press conferences are bad, let's face it. There's there's not much personality in them, road answers. So he doesn't do himself any favors in those. He still looks like a man who's like being called in front of the judge and wants to make sure he doesn't say anything that will incriminate himself or yeah, anyone that's else. that's the way he likes it. That's the way that's he likes it. That's the way it. he wants it. Yeah. You know, sort of a nicer form of Belichick. I've written that for many years. So that, you know, in terms of how the fans look at it, but the bottom line is the bottom line. The bottom line is they're nine and five with four different quarterbacks. The bottom line is even if they were nine and five with um, Deshaun and Chubb healthy and some others, we'd be considering it a really good year. So this has been fabulous, but it's also a thing of the entire organization. 
Absolutely. Um, so th- the, the feel good story that has become the Browns is something that we got a letter about. I wanted to, it's kind of interesting because they're kind of, it, you'll see when I read the letter. Um, this is from Caleb Mackey from Columbus, longtime listener of the show. And he says, Hey, Terry and Dave, this Browns team is so much more fun to cheer for when Watson is not playing. I get the feeling reading your articles that the team is more fun to cover and write about as well. When the Browns and Watson dominated teams like Tennessee and Arizona, post-game articles were cautiously optimistic in light of Watson's frustrating inconsistency and the general stench surrounding the Watson deal. Now the articles in the Flacco era read like pure unrestrained glee. It feels like you and, and Browns fans are free to once again take joy in loving their team. Do you think there's any truth to this, or am I just reading into it the way I want to see it? Thanks so much for your dedication, your craft. You enrich so many lives in so many ways. Thanks, Caleb. Um, for saying that about Terry. So what do you think, Terry? Has it been different for you in terms of how you write about the team, given it's just this is just like a fun ride lately, hasn't it been? Well, it's an an underdog story. When you bring in a quarterback with all the baggage that he brought off the field and the $230 million guaranteed contract, which still is the highest guaranteed contract in the NFL, and then you gave up all the draft choices and the suspension – and all that other stuff, it's exhausting. That's what it is. And while he would show a good game here or a good game there, there was a a trust factor that had to be uh, earned, and he was starting to kind of get there, but it was a long way to go, and then he got hurt again. Then now you're trying to bleed out some games with DTR and bleed out some with P.J. Walker. And then Joe Flacco, of all things. And this is, I think, anybody who ever had a really good career somewhere and got laid off or downsized can relate to Joe Flacco. Oh, it's a great point. And you're waiting on the couch at home for that thing. And basically, he said his agent, which I knew, had called the Browns earlier. He called everybody. I mean, Joe Lint is his agent, who's had a lot of quarterbacks. And Lint's job always was... You know, the moment a quarterback might get hurt, get on the phone and get, I'm sure he has Flacco and some others, and you go through the, your, here's my list of quarterback. You got to want one of these guys. So then Flacco comes in, and, you know, Browns fans, it's like, man, he was really good with Baltimore, but why, you know, and I was in this camp, like, he couldn't even get a job. He couldn't get a tryout. What's going on? He must be done. He must be hurt. So you figure, oh, this won't work. I mean, why not? You're the Browns. You're used to this won't work. And then, bang, he comes in here. And, okay, he looks great in warm-ups and all that. But, you know, the old throwing against air. But will he be? You know, will the game be too fast for him? All this other stuff. I mean, he's the oldest guy ever to play quarterback for the Browns. And this, he, throws, he threw for 212 yards in the fourth quarter. And that Amari Cooper touchdown was a laser. Yeah. <laughs> that threaded the needle. It could only have been thrown that way at that particular time, there's and it turned about, into a huge touchdown. Yeah. There's probably about three guys in the NFL could make that throw. Oh, yeah, for sure. And there's the other one, the fallaway throw to Njoku for the first down. His press conferences are just refreshing because he is like a guy, this is career-wise now, that got the furlough off a of death row. You know, and not only that, you ain't going to die. You're back out. Go out. Go back to your family. Go play with your kids. Get it. You know, have fun. And you could tell he's doing that. Meantime, the coaches are going, 
holy cow, we got a quarterback. Now, analytics won't like this, whatever, because they hate the drop back old fashioned quarterback. But the, here's David. Now, I'm going to throw this out, and I want you to come in as a guy who knows more about line play than I do. <laughs> okay. No, seriously, take it. So when Joe Flacco is playing quarterback, those linemen know where he's going to be. He does yes. one of two things that I see. So then, then you can explain how linemen views. He's either in the pocket or he's rolling to his right. That's it. And as a lineman, when you there's so much subtlety to pass blocking. You want to guide a guy a certain way, and you want to influence him to take a certain kind of rush. And if your quarterback is stepping up at the wrong time or doing the wrong stuff, and he runs into a sack, then like you said, Terry, you're like, what am I supposed to do? How do you want me to block this guy? And they know, like everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing on every play, and and they know where he's going to be. It's huge. I think you're right. And you don't get the big plays. You don't get the plays like Deshaun Watson made against Baltimore where he's breaking out of a tackle in the backfield and scrambling for 15 yards for a key. Like, you're not going to get that. But there are benefits to knowing that he's going to be back there and he's got this huge arm and can make every throw on the field. It's and, different. And I think in some ways it's better for this offensive line. They're missing four guys, Terry. I on Sunday, they're missing four out of the original five starters from the beginning of the season. And he's not afraid to throw the ball away to avoid a sack or just take the sack. And so they, they look at that. And then on top of it, you know, unflappable Flacco, he throws a couple interceptions. I mean, I thought he was done. They were done in that game. There is no way you had a hint that he would even throw for 112 yards in that fourth quarter of that game, much less 212. And he just, he got going. Now, I was looking at some of that, David. It looked to me like the Bears, I mean, they weren't really blitzing that much. I don't know what they were doing. There's a lot, there were a lot of guys open. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, there's there's some – I wonder what's going to happen with the Bears. That's a whole other thing. And with Justin Fields and, and uh, J- Jimmy Watkins, our colleague, wrote a column on Monday. And obviously Fields has the Ohio State ties, but he was comparing Justin Fields to entering the Baker-Mayfield crossroads, which I thought was a really interesting comparison. Mm-hmm. So they got problems. Did um, you see but, Baker had a perfect quarterback rating? Was it in Green Bay of, no, of all yep, things? Yep. By the way, you look at his stats this year. He's been healthy. This is what I've always thought, that he's an above-average quarterback when healthy and focused. And I think that's the kind of play Tampa Bay has got out of him. And just to add to that, Terry, some guys mature later than others. I I don't think Baker Mayfield coming out of college was prepared to be a professional in the sense of, of, of being a professional, like not talking trash about your coaches, yeah. being the face of the franchise. I, I can't imagine what, I mean, he, he didn't have all the backing in the world with Freddie Kitchens and all the stuff he went through. But I think if the Browns had gotten Baker Mayfield at age 25 or 26, instead of right out of college, it might've been a different story here. Yeah. Um, and I think we're seeing he's maturing now and I think he kind of gets what it is. Uh, but anyway, He's not the number one pick with the with the commercials and that. But yeah. I just want, but we got to, you know, I don't want to just pass over this. This guy, to your point, a lot of these guys never figure it out. They never figure it out. And uh, this is something Jimmy Donovan said, too, that um, I thought was significant, that too often the Browns would fall into 
uh, going for personalities. It wasn't just Baker, it was Odell and some of the others, you know, and you roll all, roll all these personalities together. And if you don't have a strong, as they say, culture and things go wrong, they go really wrong. You know, Odell sitting on the water, on the water tank and on the sidelines, taking his shoes off, you know, junk like that. Um, as you said, Baker doing his passive aggressive stuff about coaches. Here's the other thing about this season and about uh, Stefanski's growth. No drama. When the only drama has been is Deshaun, how hurt is Deshaun and is he going to play? That's regular football drama. It's not stupid drama. Browns have always majored in stupid drama. You know, this is just like regular football stuff. Now, and also to continue this a little farther, when I talk about this has been a credit to the organization, Andrew Barry made two crisis moves to save the season, and they were crisis moves. Number one was when Cade York flamed out in training camp, and he found Dustin Hopkins. Did he know Dustin Hopkins was going to kick a report? We can just drop it right in there. What is it? All right, the the weekly Dustin Hopkins kicker report. Um, I, I can't believe his, his percentage here. Anyway, he's 33 of 36 this season, Terry, with a long of 58. He's up to 91.7%, which is Justin Tucker territory. And Justin Tucker isn't even above 90% this year. So just to show you what kind of year Dustin Hopkins have, is having 22 of 24 on extra points. And he's 8 of 8 from 50 yards or longer. And they got him for a seventh round pick. And the so. reason you are... 5-0 and oh in the last two minutes of the game is you need a elite, an elite kicker to do that because it often comes down to field goals. So that was number one. Crisis move number two. We went through DTR. He went through P.J. Walker. Joe Lint is calling again about Joe Flacco. And finally, Andrew Berry said, why not? <laughs> and Somebody else could have said, why not in October? They could have said, why not in early November? They could have even said, why not in training camp? Nobody did. Barry did. Brings this guy in, and you go two and one with him, and now you're nine and five. No kicker, if you just even have an average kicker, they are not nine and five. And I don't know, if you don't have Flacco, I don't know where you are with your quarterback. All right, Terry, I got to keep us uh, moving along here, but I, I do want to mention, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Speaking of um, important players getting their due, right? Miles Garrett, I, I thought it was really interesting. Kevin Stefanski, who rarely gets up on what he called his soapbox, he says, let me read this quote. Um, he was asked about Miles Garrett on Monday after the game in his uh, Monday press conference. He says, if I can, I'll get on the soapbox here for a second, but Miles Garrett is the best player on the best defense in the league right now. Go put the tape on and watch play number four and watch how he it's – a, it's a gain of three, but watch how they try to block him. He won't be denied, gets the guy on the ground, and I think what happens with our game, we get so wrapped up in sacks. He makes a play on a crack toss late in the game that loses six yards. And if it's a sack, people think it adds to the statistics or whatever. He's dominant as a defensive player, so he's the defensive player of the year. I don't think it's close, and he's going to finish strong for this football team, but it gets so wrapped up as we do in the football society when it comes to sacks. I mean, just talk about the guy that affects the game, that pressures the quarterback, that plays the run with unbelievable effort. I don't know that there's anybody in the game in the same realm as him. So for Kevin Stefanski to say something like that on Monday, I guess we know why he would say it, but were you surprised that he went to this lengths to get 
miles out there like that. Yes, and glad. It's about time he did that, not only for him, but some of his other guys. This is what the players want. They want to hear the coach rightly has their back, not just the coach. This is everybody's great. And if Kevin wants to go after the officials on the fact they're being held, do go the Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr route in the NBA. Those are the two that do it the most. Um, fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I remember I was talking to Fratello once about, you know, criticizing facet, facet, facet officials. He goes, we're not getting any calls anyway. What are they going to do? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kind of like that. Yeah. And you, you're at the point. He doesn't get any calls. Miles Garrett doesn't get any calls. So you're not losing anything. Um, so anyway, I'm glad he did it. I'd like to see more of it. And it's really uh, that's part of his growth as a coach. But I do wonder, Terry, like th- this is important to the Browns. Like th- this is the point where you want guys getting recognition. Yes. It kind of helps build momentum. I wonder if the Browns are going to try and get miles out there more like on the on the network pregame shows where he'll do a sit down with somebody. Or I, I wonder if we're going to see like an unofficial like a Heisman campaign kind of or but except for defensive player of the year, because right now, you know, I was just looking at MGM. I think it's from MGM Sportsbook before we, we started taping here. Micah Parsons is still favored to win defensive player of the year he's like plus 100 miles is number two now at plus 165 so he's actually moving up the list and then it's tj watt and josh allen and bland and hunter um but anyway, so that i think that the browns would be glad to see that he's gaining more favor but i think i think they're going to make an effort here these last few weeks to get him some national buzz um and if you look at the P- pff isn't everything terry we say that all the time but they have him ranked as the number one defensive end in the league um, he's got the highest pass rush, pass rush win rate, and he's higher than Nick Bosa, higher than Parsons, higher than Max Crosby, T.J. Watt. He's number one on the list, and it might be one of those deals. We see this in baseball where there's like an people who know the game know who should be the MVP or the defensive MVP or whatever, and, and people who look at the sack numbers and make a lazy vote are going to vote for somebody else, but he's got to be in the mix. I mean, <laughs> the people who know football know what he's doing, I think. And also he's matured. That's a big deal. I think now the Browns would be a little more comfortable throwing him out there in all those interviews because you never, I think in the past, you weren't quite sure where he was going to go with some of this stuff. All right, Terry. Um, so before the season, before we wrap up here on the Browns segment, we both picked the Browns to win 10 games. Mm-hmm. You still think 10? I, th- I think PFF is projecting their, at them at 10.5. So I don't know. Do you th- And they have an 88% chance of making the playoffs. Are you still so does that mean they tie? 10? Yeah, right. The last one will be a tie, right? It's like somebody uh, said to me, you know, I, I hate the sports gambling stuff. You know, I just do all this. But a guy said to me, I was on a talk show. I forgot it was. Deshaun Watson, uh, over or under 35 and a half passes. So I said, oh, I get it. So the half pass is a deflection. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, do you still think there's three games left here? Do you see them winning one, two, or three? Or what do you think with this roster banged up the way it is that they're they're capable of? Um. I hope it's two. I fear it's one. I really do. I, now, I heard maybe Posick will be back this week, which would help. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but the, it, it is – they're banged up. The good thing is most other teams are also. And, uh, by the way, you know who could be playing for Houston? My favorite all-time backup quarterback. Bring the horse out of the barn, the barn yep. Terry. Case Keenum. <laughs> Who, by the way, won a game again, coming to the rescue. He's very good at this. So, 
uh, it'll be, this is just so much fun, David. It's just so much fun. And that's where the, the, uh, the guy who wrote the email was coming from. It's just unadulterated fun at this point. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I think three, four weeks ago when we were at the game, after the Browns had secured the win, I'm trying to remember what game it was. Some, somebody held up a Believe banner in the dog mm-hmm. pound. And I'm, I, I kind of made a note of that. And it's so weird, Terry, but I'm I'm trying to think what kind of playoff opponent would give the Browns the most trouble. And if they end up playing Jacksonville in that first game, I mean, Jacksonville has like the 27th ranked pass rush in the league. Yeah. Tell me why the Browns couldn't beat them in Jacksonville. Like, there's no reason. No. Uh, and then who knows what after that. So it's it's weird. I mean, the one big issue, and this is a thing they need to overcome, and it's something to watch, but they got two road games, the defense on the road. That's the big factor because that's what's going to carry them. By the way, Joe Flacco, wild card games, his record is, David? I have no idea, but I'm going to say like 5-1. and one? Five and zero. Oh. It was in my Sunday oh. no- weekend notes. Five and zero. Oh. So there you go. His December record. Well, he had another one now, so it's twenty four and eighteen. That's December and January together. So he's a pretty good closer. All right. Well, let's close this segment on the Browns, Terry. The Browns, are, of course, are playing on Christmas Eve at one o'clock at Houston. We will see who the quarterback will be. I guess that'll be determined later in the week. And then um, Thursday night game against the Jets will be on the 28th. So we'll have a podcast in between then. But uh, interesting last few games. Let's take a break. And then we come back. I want to ask you about how Cavs fans should feel about the injuries to Darius Garland and Evan Mobley. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. Terry, let's get into the Cavs a little bit. They're 15 and 12, and actually, I think they're in sixth place now in the Eastern Conference after their win last night over Houston. After it came later in the week last week, so I don't think we were able to pot about this, but um, what was your reaction to the injuries to Darius Garland and Evan Mobley? It was like a double whammy of injuries for Cavs fans to deal with on the same day last week. Same day, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about what this means? How should Cavs fans feel about it? I wonder what was going on with Noah Mobley because he wasn't playing for like two or three weeks. It's like, and he kept saying, knee, you have to go, knee, knee. Well, what's with the knee? I mean, if it's bruised or whatever, you should have been playing. So I'm glad if they had to go in there and clean it out or whatever they did, arthroscopic, fine, get it done. And, you know, Garland, remember he would he got hit in the face last year. and some, That's a difficult thing for him is staying healthy. So. He gets nailed in the face out. all the time. It's crazy. Yeah, he just does. Now, I don't know if he – some of these guys have worn a mask over the years, but, you know, he tried it and didn't like it. Maybe this will change his point of view. So now you go to how are they playing in terms of this. And uh, before you mentioned we were going to talk about the rotation change, but I want to talk about Donovan Mitchell. And I saw this with – um Doug Collins was coaching the Bulls. This is in the early days of Michael Jordan, and they had some injuries in their backcourt. And also, Doug realized that when he had Jordan on the wing, it was a little easier for them when there's nobody else to protect them to double-team him. He put the ball in Jordan's hands, had him bring it up and staying in the middle of the floor because he believed it was easier for Jordan to split the double-teams. Also, Jordan at that point didn't feel pressure to shoot all the time because he had the ball. So he was passing. He started racking up triple doubles. 
from the point guard position. And they rode that into the playoffs. It didn't go real far. But I'm seeing some of that going on with B, uh, with uh, JB and Donovan. Put the ball in his hands. Now, if I remember right, early last year, they went 6-0 and when Garland was out. This is not to say they're a better team without Garland, but it is to say there are ways they could win without Garland because Mitchell is such a dominant talent. And you can see he is just looking to play just good team basketball. I mean, he's he's making a lot of passes, rebounding. Uh, now, they're asking a lot out of him, and he's going to wear down. But I have seen a little bit of this before, and it can work short term. So what you're saying, Terry, is instead of Donovan Mitchell playing off the ball and maybe getting a pass with 12 on the shot clock, and now he's got to decide what to do, he's he's bringing it up the floor or whatever, he can give it away and still get it back. So he's kind of getting two for one on every possession if they want, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is that is that the way it worked with Jordan? I mean, and I know yeah. you talk about splitting the double teams, but it gives him more of a con- – he can orchestrate things better yeah, go, and decide to, how, he, how he's going to approach his possession. And go to the rim, dish it off for easy baskets, or now they weren't doing the corner three thing like they do now. Uh, the pass to there, but it just opens a lot. And remember this, you have to be a, a strong elite driver to the rim to pull this off. And well, Jordan was one of the greatest at just almost everything, except perhaps three point shooting I've seen, but Donovan is pretty close in his ability to get to the rim. He's so strong, especially when he does the crossover dribble or even his spin dribble. You know, he leaves people in the dust, and then all of a sudden he's demanding all kinds of defensive attention, and a lot of guys are open. So hence you see Sam Merrill looking like he's doing his his little Mark Price imitation or something. And you see some of these other guys. uh, The roles, while they're changing, they're going to be more defined just because uh, you do have basically – Donovan and a bunch of role players. Yeah, so you mentioned Sam Merrill uh, last night. Terry, 19 points on 6 of 11 shooting, some big buckets to help the Cavs put that game away. Played 24 minutes, and 10 guys played in the game last mm-hmm. night, which I, I don't remember the exact stat, but it's the most in a long time that the Cavs have used. Um, all of them made at least one basket. I'm taking this from Chris Fedor's coverage of the game last night. Nine of them played more than 17 minutes. Eight of them scored in double figures. That's the first time that's happened since 2016. And all but one of the 10 guys had an assist and 135 points. The game went to overtime. But, you know, you never want to see players get hurt or be out of action. But could this give JB a chance to look and see what some of these other guys can do in game conditions and maybe make his rotation longer when the guys come back healthy and can play. Like you, you talk about role players, like Isaac Okoro's going into the season was like, I want to show people what I can do. And now he's finally getting some more minutes and he's going to be able to get more minutes for the next several weeks. Is, is this going to help the Cavs in the long term in terms of knowing what guys can do and maybe JB extending the, the rotation a little bit? What do you think? It should. Um, the playoffs still are a different game and keep that in mind. Uh, but that's why with the regular season, I saw right away what he was doing with Mitchell. And I'm going, this could work short term. It's one of those column things I have idea to write the column, but I just haven't written it yet. Uh, this can work short term. Uh, and then you will bring the most out of some of these other guys. 
Uh, now, the, what they're not, without the Mobley, they are not the defensive team they were before. They're going to have to score more. And you're asking, you know, Jarrett Allen's getting foul trouble and everything else. See that he's trying to really cover up a lot of deficient uh, deficiencies on defense. Okoro becomes even more important because, you know, they're putting him a lot on that whoever the top scorer is because you don't really want Donovan Mitchell chasing whoever the best off guard is around the league along with that. So, by the way, that's the other thing that they did with Jordan sometime when he was playing because Doug was playing him like 42 to 44 minutes, Doug Collins, I mean. So he would put him on maybe um, – the kind of the off guard, the, whatever the two guards, the one that, that was the least athletic and let him rest. So the, that allows JB to do that because think about it. Not only does he have a coral, Struess is good defensively. Both of those guys have size, both like the rebound. Both are just, they are tough. And I do like that. Some of the, we talked about the team grit, you know, uh, the grit group I wanted. You're going to see grit more lineup, of yeah. it. Yeah. You know, with Porter getting in there, um, I just – granted, I'm a basketball purist, and, and this is where I feel far more comfortable talking about than the intricacies of football. Uh, it, it comes from having spent a bunch of time with Lenny Wilkins and Wayne Embry when I was on the beat where the practices were open and everything else. And, and I got to know Doug Collins very well, for example, with the Bulls. And we, we he would explain to me while he was doing this stuff. It was a different era. But I so I see things here that could be a lot of fun. Um, I if it would be interesting to see how this would work with Mobley in there because I I just mm. think boy you, you retain most of your defensive identity and that so. Um, but the tough thing is especially for Mobley coming back we'll see how he is with that knee. By the way, my wife has an idea, Roberta. You know she has a favorite Mobley. It's Isaiah Mobley, the brother. She wants him. She goes, well, why isn't he? But think about who's getting minutes. Tristan Thompson. He's back to getting rebounds on that offensive board. Guys are tackling him. He's tackling them. Um, You know, he doesn't care whether he scores or not. See, that's another good benefit of this, just getting him in there. Uh, Niang is a tough guy. If you watch him, he does a lot of holding and pushing. So, Again, the role players, you know, the grit group, which you could add different names in and out, um, I think just really brings, if you're a basketball purist, watch some of this stuff. Watch how they're interacting. And the key thing will be how long can Mitchell hold up with all you're going to ask him to do. Yeah, a lot of responsibility he's carrying. Now, you mentioned the fun of people watching some of these guys get an opportunity, Terry. We did get an email from DGL in Wilmington, North Carolina, and he says, wow, so excited about the Cavs' bench strength this season. Struess may be the most important addition to the starting lineup, but Niang, Porter, Okoro, Lavert, and the Angels' Tristan Thompson give me great comfort yep. when Bickerstaff goes to the bench. Such a turnaround from last year. So thanks for that. Uh, but that ties into what you're saying, Terry. Uh, some of these guys, are everybody's bringing something. Mm-hmm. And yep. Kobe Altman, I think, deserves a lot of credit for that because had he not made those moves, this could be big trouble. All right, so the Cavs are back at it on Wednesday night. They're home against Utah, and then they have another home game on Thursday, a back-to-back against New Orleans. And then they are at Chicago on Saturday, and then they're at Dallas next week, just a quick two-game road trip. By the way, David, yeah. I'm surprised Utah's not playing better. I thought after they made the Mitchell trade, they got a nice haul with Sexton. 
Markkanen, um, Abaje, you draft picks. Um, I think last I saw they were like 11 and 17 or something, you know. Um, there, there's something going on there. Market is still having uh, an all-star season, but um, I'm, I'm curious to see how they look because I thought that that trade would spring them into the second year where they're having a winning record and being a playoff-type team, but it has not. Yeah, and all those young guys get another year. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Terry, uh, we'll get uh, – let's see if we can start moving toward the end here. We got um, – for our hundredth episode a couple months ago, yeah. you asked fans to write in where they're from, so I wanted to keep rolling through those. Okay. People sent in a bunch of responses to sports at cleveland.com. Uh, this one's from Sammy Corbatli, and Sammy says, "Hello, David and Terry. I was born in Lebanon in the Middle East. <laughs> I immigrated. I immigrated to Akron in 2001. I was attending the University of Akron. Go Zips." When LeBron became LeBron, I became a fan of all three Cleveland franchises. I currently live in the Chicagoland area, but I'm still a Cleveland fan. The Indians versus Cubs World Series was really tough. I haven't missed any of your episodes, and I don't plan to miss any in the future. So thanks for that, Sammy. Wow. Um, an Ak- Akron connection there. And, yeah, if, I, I remember back then in 2001 uh, when, when LeBron was coming along, and it was a, it was such a <laughs> – crazy time to be in northeast ohio when lebron was coming to uh his power back then it was it was a special time so um and here's one more we got terry this one's from michael s it's a little bit longer but there's some good stuff in here it says hey terry i can't tell you how much i enjoy your podcast such a perfect blend of current discussion and reminiscing of days gone by i love hearing your interactions with rocky calavito I count myself among the millions who still see Rocky as my all-time favorite, and my sister has the same birthday. Um, Listen to the recent podcast when one fan mentioned Jimmy Dudley and another about wearing plastic bags on his feet when he was at <laughs> games at the old stadium. I'll share a quick story about being cold while cheering my team. Not the one about attending the Oakland playoff game where Sype threw the interception right in front of me using tickets I purchased from Mike Garcia's son and huh. getting to meet the bear when I picked them up. It was reportedly 20 below windchill that day, but the coldest I ever experienced was in the Grand Old Stadium was a 6-2 loss to Dallas in 1970, I believe, when it was like 31 degrees and raining. We led 2-0 most of the game until Dallas <laughs> kicked a field goal to take a commanding 3-2 lead. Then I can still see Gary Collins dropping a pass over the middle late in the game that would have put us in the red zone, but that wasn't in the cards. That ball had to be wet and weigh about 30 pounds. Dallas <laughs> did kick a field goal of their own for the 6-2 final score. I sat in the very end seat upper deck of the open end with the wind <laughs> and rain relentlessly whipping in from Lake Erie the entire game. That was cold. Your comment in that podcast that once you get the Tribe or Browns in your blood as a youngster, it just sticks with you. It's so on the mark. My first Tribe memory is in 1955, but 1957 to 69 would be my wheelhouse. Hearing the names of Vic Davalio saddened me. I have six of his baseball cards, and I got wow. them out for a week. Sorry to ramble, but mentioning Jimmy Dudley, if you ever get a chance to hear his narration of the heritage of the Indians, do it. I can't find it, but if I but I had an LP of it in the 60s. It's a classic and stirring rendition. For now, the string is out, so I'll look forward to your next podcast. Go Browns and Guardians, and that's from Michael S. Thanks for that, Michael. Some and good du- stuff there. Dudley, so. Dudley is in the Hall of Fame, I believe. And uh, what happened there is I wrote about this in the Curse of Rocky Calavito. They had two broadcasters, well-known, Jimmy Dudley and, and Bob Neal. Neal did some network work. Their relationship was so bad, David, that they refused to talk to each other. 
on the air. So no I, way. I forgot who would do the first two. And so, in other words, let's just say Neil did the first two. Then he'd get up and leave. Dudley would do the next two. And then they get up and they they were really just at each other's throat. Pete Franklin told me the story too. So Franklin just came to town as the uh, star sports talker. So they kind of put him in the game, sat between the two of them. And he notices going on. Then for a while, they both sat there. They would talk to Pete, but they wouldn't talk to each other. <laughs> and then finally what happened is uh, Dudley got fed up with it. Neil won the power struggle, and Dudley left town. Yeah. Tell him that I say this. It was like telephone. They had to pass it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, just to show doesn't matter. None of those guys were young either, by the way. You don't have to be old to be stupid and immature about <laughs> certain things. And that was one that they were. And by the way, Dudley was a far more pleasant person to be around than Neil. So for whatever that's worth. All right. Well, thanks for all the letters. We're going to keep, uh, we've got several more to read from people who sent those in for our 100th episode. We'll keep getting to those. If you want to hit us with a question or a comment or, hey, ideas on how to make the podcast better in 2024, you can send those to sports at cleveland.com. And I want to put in a plug for Terry's newsletters we do every week. If you want to get everything Terry writes in your inbox once a week, I think it goes out on Mondays, go to cleveland.com slash newsletters. Just click on the box for Terry's stuff and you just put your email in. It takes a minute and you're good to go. So. I think that's it, Terry, right? That'll do it. What are you, what are you doing for Christmas, staying in town? Yeah, well, we'll do the a service at the Haven of Rest, the Akron City Mission. We have that in the evening. And we'll probably visit my mom, Melva, over at the nursing home in the morning and take it easy. Wonderful. Go to Go to church before that, you know, the, the day before. Because, like, when Christmas is on Monday, nobody knows what to do. They don't know when to have Christmas Eve services and all kinds of other stuff. So it's fun yeah. to watch how the different churches are working that out. But, um I'm just uh, uh, I'm just really grateful that uh, we're at 100 and whatever podcast and, and it does seem to be growing and people seem to be interested. Yeah, and thank you everybody for listening. Yeah, I'll bet we'll be working on Christmas Eve for the game and recovering on uh, on Monday. So enjoy it, everybody. We will catch you next week with a new edition of Terry's Talking. <laughs>